0: Welcome to the State of Business with the Ohio Society of CPAs. I'm Jessica Salerno, Senior Content Manager at OSCPA, and this is the show for CPAs and accountants, where we cover the latest in technology, business development, career management, and more. CPAs are known for upholding moral and ethical standards. But when former CPA, Helen Sharkey, found herself being pressured to cross some ethical lines at work, it ended in her worst nightmare. She went through an SEC investigation and was eventually sent to federal prison. But a lot happened before that point, and I spoke with Helen about her experience. We discussed what it feels like being pressured to do unethical things, what the investigation was like, how it felt going to prison, and the steps she took to piece her life back together afterward. After graduating college with an accounting degree, Helen earned her CPA credential and then spent three years at PricewaterhouseCoopers before receiving a job offer in 1996 at Dynegy, an energy trading company in Houston. Here's how her story begins.
1: The first year that I was uh, at Dynergy, I did managerial reporting and what that entailed was analyzing actual results to plan and i kept finding myself over and over again having to go up to the trade floor to ask for an explanation and at the time i really knew very little about trading and uh i don't i found that a lot of people didn't understand the trading business at the time so i quickly realized that if i wanted to further my career i really needed to to truly understand the trading business so after a year in managerial reporting i moved into a compliance function in risk control where we had oversight over the traders in terms of making sure that they were staying within their designated limits reporting anything that fell outside of those limits and that's where i really began to learn the nuts and bolts of the energy trading business. And that's what eventually led me to uh, the consulting role I took, uh, which was really set up to go out with these deal makers as they were putting these deals together to make sure that they were structuring their deals to be able to take advantage of mark to market accounting, which was. Uh, commonly or the used accounting method for the trading business and that's really what i think people need to understand is that these these dilemmas these um things don't just happen overnight it's a very slow process and it it starts with standards and lines being crossed and once that first line is crossed by the company or your coworker or your boss, once that first line is crossed, then it accelerates the speed of the demise of standards within the company.
0: What, what would you say was the first line for you?
1: When we when I first got assigned to this transaction very early on we were getting a lot of pressure from the bank to do things that really just didn't make logical sense to me. You know, I, I, My background was more on the analytical side and not on the technical side in terms of the EITFs and the FASBs and all of that, but just logical sense, just you know, very basic accounting 101 things that we were being asked to do or told by the banks that our competitors were doing, and they were specifically talking about Enron, it, it, it made me very uncomfortable. Now, early on, on the transaction, we weren't crossing those lines. But after months and months and months of working on this deal, trying to get this deal closed and a tremendous pressure to get it closed, When we went to New York and it was, you know, the 11th hour, that's when lines started getting crossed. People really lost perspective on the big picture and were really focused on getting the deal done come hell or high water.
0: And how old were you when this was happening?
1: I was 27, 28 years old at the time. So pretty young in my career. I mean, I'd had my three years of public accounting, um, but fairly young at the time. Okay. And do you think
0: kind of being newer, younger in your career kind of contributed to maybe feeling those pressures to, like you mentioned, kind of cross that first line?
1: I think, you know, and I, I don't know if it's youth um, or just in general, when you work with people who have much more experience than you, who are well-seasoned, very well-respected, it, it is intimidating. Um, and there are very few people that at, at the age of 28 with you know four or five years of experience, going into a group that's totally new, a completely different job, would feel comfortable challenging people who have a decade or more of experience over them, especially mm-hmm. the, the things that we're talking about are, are, are very uh, ambiguous. You don't have an example deal to go to, to say, Oh, this is how it was done before. When you're in new territory and you're new to a job, you're new to, um, the profession, it it, it is very hard to to try to figure out what part of this is me not knowing because I'm inexperienced and what part of this is I don't like this because it's unethical and we're going to cross lines here.
0: I'm guessing probably a lot of younger professionals uh, can relate to that perspective because you obviously want to do the best job you can do and be confident in your opinions and in the things that you're completing, but then there always sort of is that element of, well, I don't know everything. There are a lot of people around me who know a lot more. So you kind of have to walk that line between doing the best you can while also sort of deferring to their judgment.
1: Correct, but I will say this, and this is hindsight and, you know, me almost 20 years later, that I like to tell people going into their careers That when you go work for a company, you you should feel comfortable enough to ask when you don't understand why something is being done this way. You should be allowed to get clarity if something is you're uncomfortable about it. Perhaps you're Mm -hmm. uncomfortable because you just don't fully understand the big picture. We're often tasked to work on one part of a bigger deal, but if you're asking those questions of your employer. And they're not trying to address those concerns. They're trying to kind of sweep you under the rug and move on with it. You should be asking yourself whether or not you really want to be working for that company.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I'm guessing that uh, being able to ask those questions is something at the time you did not feel comfortable with.
1: Yes and no. I, I think that the questions were asked over and over again. We had so many iterations of this particular transaction, mm-hmm. um, and we had so many changes in direction, not just internally, but even from our own auditors. There came a point where I felt like no matter what I did, I I was going to get overruled. Who am I? You know, I'm low man on the totem pole, right? Right. The, he, people I'm saying yeah this doesn't sound right but then again I'm getting this commentary from all these other people that actually this is why this is working this way and this is how it's done in the real world so i.e go away Helen and you know shut your mouth so um so it was it was a really a different time again I think when you're in an industry that's relatively new and complex and not a lot of people understand it, those are the dangers.
0: After that transaction went through, Helen said a few months later she left the accounting department to work on the trading floor. Later, she was asked to work on a second iteration of that deal, which she declined. A year later was when things started happening that Helen never expected.
1: It all started with 9-11, and everybody's stock price started tumbling. And then Enron happened, and uh, or at least the announcement of the SEC investigation. And when that happened, I started thinking back on what had happened in New York and all of the references that were being made to what Enron was doing doing. That seemed completely outrageous. We just thought it was a tactic um, from the bank to get us to, to do these, to make these compromises. That's when things started making sense to me. But, you know, unfortunately, instead of saying, whoa, hey, you know, I was involved in something unethical, perhaps I have exposure, instead of really stepping out of that situation and trying to look at it tactically. I kind of shut my mouth and went on with my business until um, Dinergy, uh was investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission.
0: And what happened after that?
1: Then it was, you know, a massive snowball. Um, it just <laughs> grew and grew and grew into probably my worst nightmare.
0: The SEC came in to investigate Dinah and Helen said the attorneys for the company implied because she was a more junior-level employee that the government had little interest in her. She said she met with the SEC two or three times without any representation of her own, which she described as the beginning of the end.
1: The investigation went on for at least a year. With very little movement, and I think right around the under a year mark, Dynergy settled the case with the SEC, um, and the bank also settled the case with the SEC, but they didn't admit any wrongdoing. What was happening behind the scenes was that Dynagy was building a case that only a few of us were. Knowledgeable of the offending portions of the deal. And so at that point, the Department of Justice got involved and it became a criminal matter. You know, when the SEC was involved, it was a civil matter. But as soon as that civil matter, matter was settled with the SEC, that's when the criminal investigation began. And that's when it got really, really ugly. Obviously, they came after the individuals who worked on the transaction.
0: Which meant they were coming after you.
1: Exactly. And again, at this point, I hadn't even had my own attorney representing me. Now, I will say that once that criminal investigation was launched launched and Dynagy had settled on the civil side, they did um, agree to pay for the legal bills for the non-executives on the team, and that included myself. Um, and that's when I retained my own attorney. Um, but unfortunately, I think at that point, the damage was done.
0: And what happened after, after you got your own attorney?
1: It, it seemed to accelerate again, and... I was very shocked that at some point it went from investigating the company and the higher ups who were the ones making ultimately making those decisions to targeting us as individuals and making it out as if three of three of us you know had gotten into a room and concocted this deal mm-hmm. without the company's knowledge which was so far from the truth But that's basically, you know, in a nutshell, what ended up happening. Um, And so eventually, we were informed that we were being targeted and that we were going to be indicted. Um, And that's when it all blew up. Now, once I was indicted and, you know, everything was out on the table, it became clear that The DOJ and the SEC were aware that it wasn't just a group of three of us doing this, but, you know, we were the three that they had the most paper and documentation on, and so that's where they were starting. They were wanting to work their way up. Unfortunately, it stopped with us.
0: And uh, what happened to you as a result of being indicted?
1: So um, at that point, I had actually left Dynegy and had taken another job um, at another energy company. Once I was informed that I was being targeted, I of course let my employer know, and and I, I do not fault them for this in the least bit. But I lost my job before, you know. Before any trial happened, before any plea happened, I ended up losing my job. And Dynaji also cut off my legal funding, which actually we later found out was a response to the U.S. Attorney's Office, who basically told Dynaji that if they continued to pay the legal bills of those of us that they were targeting, that they would consider that not that they would consider Dinergy uncooperative because they were basically supporting us in our in our legal battle. So my legal funding was cut off. And after getting my own attorney um, and talking to him about what had happened on the transaction and realizing what I didn't realize before was that I had exposure that. Just because you not you may not be the ultimate decision make, maker, just because you're that small box at the bottom of the corporate org chart, just because, even if you're nobody in the company, if you know of something going on that's inappropriate and you choose not to do anything about it, you are just as responsible as the decision maker at the top. And at the time, that was a really difficult pill to swallow. So once that was explained to me. And once I was told that Dynagy was no longer paying my legal bills, I decided to take a plea deal.
0: Ultimately, Helen agreed to a conspiracy charge, which had a five year maximum sentence, and she became a cooperating witness for the government. She said the investigation continued for another five years before she was sentenced. And by then, the government had decided to no longer pursue any more individuals of Dynagy. She was sentenced to 30 days in federal prison, six months of home confinement, and a $10,000 fine. Another part of her plea deal was surrendering her CPA license. So did you spend the full 30 days in, in prison?
1: Actually, I spent 28 days there, uh, which again, you know, may not seem like a big deal, but I had recently had twin babies. Um, and spent those 28 days away from them when they were 10 months old. So it was, it was really, uh, it was an eye-opening experience on many levels, and it, it, not just because of how scary it was, but it certainly gave me personally perspective going forward on what is important in life.
0: And when you talk about going forward, then after you were done, um, how did you, you know, put your life back together after that whole ordeal went on for years?
1: I had gotten married in the middle of all of this and had my married name, my alias (laughs) that I was going by. So I thought I could kind of hide behind the scenes and, you know, I had my married name I thought once I served my time in prison that I would be able to shut that door, put that memory on a shelf and never think about it again. But to be completely honest with, and, and I thought I, would comp- I was completely emerged in being a new mother, but to be completely honest with you, I hadn't really dealt with a lot of it. And so as my children started getting a little bit older, um, and I I was doing a lot of therapy at the time, trying to understand myself, why I allowed myself to get pulled into all of this and, and make these bad decisions. Um, but I was a mess and was really struggling with how was I going to explain all of this to my children? Because the fear was always there. This had been blasted all over the news, the internet. Um, and my biggest fear was when my kids Google my name, what are they going to find? Are they going to see that picture of me with my hands cuffed behind my back when I'm being escorted to the courthouse? I mean, so I had actually gone through several therapists and I landed with one particular therapist who made me focus on that fear, fear of dealing with all of this instead of delaying it. And she basically encouraged me to write a letter to my sons and be prepared to answer the questions. And that's where all of this started. I I wrote the letter to the boys and that summer I got done writing the letter and a friend called me and he happened to be on the board of the Houston CPA Society and was looking for speakers for their fall conference. And he asked me to come speak. And I remember laughing at him because, believe it or not, public speaking was one of the things I feared most, not something I ever had any interest in doing. And I certainly didn't want to get in front of a group of my peers and talk about how I blew up my life. But over a few weeks, he encouraged me to to do it and i made the decision to go present that fall i think it was the fall of 2012 and that was the beginning for me of letting all of this go i couldn't believe you know here i was in front of a group of 500 strangers for the most part right the cpa who basically flushed their life down the toilet. And the encouragement that was coming from them, the understanding, the stories that I heard, it was, it was very cathartic for me and very healing. And that kind of was the beginning of healing for me and moving forward and, and really making the decision I'm not going to hide behind the shadows anymore worrying about when someone's going to figure out that I'm a felon. I'm going to get in front of it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about my mistake because guess what everybody makes them? And I'm going to be honest and I'm not going to live in fear anymore and that was the beginning for me. And from there I it, it kind of took off. I really had never imagined speaking and gosh, it's been eight years now, and I'm still actively speaking at universities and events and professional organizations. So it has been really, um, something I never thought would happen in and in a positive that came from such a horrible period of time in my life.
0: And you've talked a lot, Helen, um, about kind of the intricacies of the the situation that you went through, how it happened over years, and and it sounds like you've done since that period a lot of reflecting, um, which I imagine gives you a a great perspective on um, a lot of these issues. Do you find yourself, do a lot of professionals come to you um, talking about the maybe unethical pressures that they have faced as well?
1: I do, I do find that Every time I go out and speak at an event, people will come up to me afterwards and tell me about an experience they had, Uh, you know, and I have a lot of people that will be honest and tell me, you know, I went through something similar and I also spent time in jail. And I I do remember one experience in particular, I was speaking in front of a group of um, financial professionals uh, that work in the stock market. And one guy came up to me afterwards and I'm not laughing because it was funny, but he was, his face was completely white and his eyes were just, he said, my God, he goes, I remember feeling the way you described when all of this was going on. It's like, you know, nothing you can imagine when you go through one of these experiences. But um, I do get a lot of people talking to me about their experiences and one of the things that it's important to know is, I hate to say this, but history repeats itself. Where there's a will, there's a way and that's why it's so important for organizations and the leadership to set that tone at the top of uncompromising ethical standards and sticking to that because once you know again if my experiences show um once people cross that first line it gets easier and easier to do it second and the third and then once that happens the standards are are lowered and that becomes the new normal and then the standards keep going lower and lower so it's very important to For leaders to to set those standards and for people when they're going into a company to work for it, don't just be happy about getting a job, make sure the employer you're going to work for is worthy of you. And if you're hearing about unethical practices before you ever go to work for someone, don't put yourself in the situation. So that's kind of one of the things I, I, I really, that's the one piece of advice I tell people, no job, is worth destroying your life over. And you know, speaking up about something shouldn't get you fired. And if it does, you should probably be counting your blessings that you're no longer at that company. Go to work somewhere that's going to, you know, be collaborative and allow for those dialogues to happen.
0: And when you talk about having, um, you know, a company maintaining uncompromising ethical standards, uh, we also discussed earlier, you know, that crossing that first line. And I wanted to ask you, what should professionals do if they feel like, you know, they are in that initial position where they feel like they are being asked to cross the first line? What should they do next?
1: That's a great question, Um, and my number one piece of advice there is don't panic, because most people, when they do have a realization that they're being asked to do something that they're not comfortable with, you have a visceral reaction, and that visceral reaction, whether it's you start sweating or you have a rapid heartbeat, That's your body panicking and preparing for battle, right? And the worst thing you can possibly do in those situations is panic. And there's a lot of science behind the brain and and what happens. But when you panic, you're actually working in a part of the brain that's the size of a pea. It's called the limbic system. Um, Those are scientific terms. I equate that part of the brain to the caveman brain. Caveman wasn't analyzing um, formulas and and creating Excel spreadsheets and and doing these, you know, analyses. The caveman was trying to survive basic survival instincts. When you're in that pea-sized portion of the brain, all of those skills like critical thinking, analytical reasoning, all of those skills do not function in that part of the brain. And that is a fact. So the first Piece of advice that I give people is when you, number one, recognize the signs of panic in yourself. And when you start to feel that you're in a panic, you've got to find some way to walk it back. Talk yourself off the ledge so that you can think through the problem. And the other piece of advice that I give people is first, again, don't panic. Number two, something that's been very valuable through the years. Um, is uh, the ethical decision-making model. It's something that was introduced to me by one of my professor friends that I met over the years. And originally, I I kind of thought this is hokey because this is common sense, right? The model takes you through if this happens, do this. And I thought, well, this is common sense. But if you're in a panic mode or you're kind of on the verge of crossing into that panic mode, that ethical decision-making model can help you walk it back and get your brain back to focusing on the problem at hand and what you need to do about it. Because you need to be able to dissect the problem, determine who is being affected, make sure that you know where you need to go next. Um, And then the next step obviously is talking to somebody um, outside of your company, a mentor, whether that's a professor, or a previous boss, and kind of taking them through your analysis and, and asking their opinion um, on, on whether or not you are overreacting to a situation or whether you need to move forward with possibly getting an attorney. Um, I've given you more than one answer to that question. I apologize. But the number one thing is do not panic. And then number two, try to figure out break down the situation, like you would with any other business scenario, but you're doing it for yourself, right? Try to break down what the underlying issue is and who's gonna be affected because that will determine what you need to do next.
0: When you talked earlier about hoping that you could put that that memory, that time sort of on a shelf and never think about it again, how does it feel now that this is something that you've been able to turn into a positive for your life and kind of share your perspective and your experience with others um, so they can learn from it?
1: I will tell you, there is nothing heavier than carrying secrets or being, you know, (sighs) I don't know if I'm going to be answering your question exactly, but, you know, most of my life before this project, I was a perfectionist. Uh, I did everything the right way. I went to school. I got great grades. I got a great job. I passed the CPA exam the first time. I went to go work for the number one accounting firm in the world, but then I screwed up. But screwing up for me Um, And I really didn't say it very eloquently, but that is what it was. An epic fail was very um, freeing for me because we all make mistakes and those mistakes are meant to should give us huge potential growth as a person. And for me, Yeah, it gave me perspective on what's important in life. Um, It gave me the ability to own when I screw up. (laughs) That wasn't the first time and it certainly isn't the last time. Um, Hopefully not, I won't fail on that epic scale again, but it has, and, and being able to talk to people to let them know you can screw up and move on with your life even as epically as I did, is, is very rewarding. And, and now as a mother, it's an important message for my children. It's like, if you guys mess up, and I've told them this before, I have two teenagers, I fully expect you to mess up because I don't expect perfection. But what I expect from you is when you mess up, to own it. Because oftentimes, it's the, co- the cover-up is worse than the, the original crime. So, um, I know I went off on a crazy tangent there, but, um, but for me, I often look back at the experience and go, wow, you know, everything in my life lined up that this was meant to happen. It was meant, it was, it was an awakening for me about people in general. I, I never understood how people could screw up so epically. I just was very judgmental. And having now done something like that myself, I find myself to be less judgmental, uh, a little more understanding. And I also don't hold myself to the standard of perfection that I used to hold myself up to, which was an impossible standard to maintain.
0: Thank you to Helen for sharing her story and being so open and honest throughout. You can hear more from her at the virtual Women Wealth and Wellness Summit on July 23rd. Register at OhioCPA.com slash WWW20 or click the link in our show notes. And whether this is your first podcast or you're a regular listener, I'd love to know what you think. Please rate and review us on whatever podcast app you're using to listen. Or you can send me an email at jsalerno, J-S-A-L-E-R-N-O at OhioCPA.com.